This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Program. I am Kurt Johnson, and you are tuned to 3CR 8.55am. Now, today I will be telling you about a quest I went on, a quest to answer a question. Can we consume our way out of climate change? It began a few weeks ago when I was at the pub with two of our other presenters, that's Vivian and Andy, and I got a recording of a little chat we had which led us up to our show today. Let's have a listen to that chat right now. So we are at the at the Union, and we've just had dinner. Viv's just finished her show. I'm here with Andy and Viv. And we just ducked in, can we consume our way out of climate change? What do you, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I... You'd hope we could in a capitalist society, maybe. It yeah. may be the only way that we can. No, I don't think we consume more. That suggests we consume more. I think we need to to wind ourselves back to the 1930s and be happy with that sort of life. And it's nice because we're in a pub where there's all these kind of 1940s-type pictures and books around mm-hmm. us, and I... Actually, I'm old enough to remember that period where people were thrifty and people were self-constrained. And I would like that. My father, for example, never travelled overseas. He only went to the war. He went on a ship to the war and came back. And he never went anywhere else overseas. And and my kids now can go overseas every year and travel on planes and drive their cars up and down and round and about the whole of Australia if they want to. And I just feel that we can't keep doing that. Somebody's got to downsize. Someone's got to say, throw the switch, downsize, at least for this generation. It's not like asking you to die. I think that it's not It's not just are people consuming, and do, do they keep consuming in the way they are? I, my question is that I just think so many of the solutions to climate change are posed to us in a way that means in a way that we can only interact with them by consuming them. Say, okay, so what's the, what's the solution to driving a big car? You buy a Prius. You buy a Toyota Prius, you get a car. You buy a car. You buy a solar solar hot water heater. You buy a solar panel. You, you know, you buy hemp clothes. The only way that we know how to interact with society is as consumers. And I'm wondering if... Can we just buy solar solar panels and buy a Prius and get out of it that way or do we have to say no to something? Is it enough just to be involved in the green economy? I'm very strongly opposed to that because I think it's greenwash. A lot of those things are sold to us as greenwash. Those green cars, electric vehicles, they all require a lot of new materials to be put into them. I, I think we need to go down the path of public transport, public ownership, collective workplaces we need to downsize we need to stay where we are localized is better local i'm happy to stay local i'm sorry for you younger people that you might have to stay local but would it be worse than the kind of climate change that we the 
middle class of the richest country in the world, one of the richest countries. There's only a small layer of people in the world who are doing this. The poorest people in the world are not doing any of this consumerism. They're not. Mm. And we are doing it. Whether we're rich or poor, we're still doing it because we live in this society. And I just think, why can't we just bite the bullet and say, ah, there's a kind of a pleasure in simplicity. There's a way of downsizing. We can just think, think of ways to talk it up. We never talk it up because we just feel locked in to consumerism. Yeah. Well, I think probably the next step, best step, is if I talk to an economist and I see if we can actually just keep participating as consumers and keep buying more and more stuff and see if it's a possibility that we can tackle climate change that way. Yeah, I think there will be people who talk about these um, circular economy and all of that, but I remember when Kevin Rudd gave us all a bonus. Do you remember that? $900. Was it $900? Yeah, yeah. I my, my kids got that, a $900 bonus, and it seemed like a present for consumers when to go out and spend it. That was going to stimulate the economy, and apparently, according to people, it did stimulate the economy. But I, I still live with that thought. If I, if I don't buy this ticket or do this thing or buy that thing, I'm robbing someone of a job. It's now so linked mm. with jobs. And I'd like some economist who could break me out of that thinking that it's virtuous to consume and sort of really mean and nasty to be... It's like an austerity program, a personal austerity program to, to downsize. Uh, I don't know where they're forward, but surely the economists can think of, have got some ideas on it. Ah, yes, and true to our word, we did track down an economist. We found... Uh, Richard Dennis, who is uh, from the Australian Institute, he's the lead economist there, and I went and had a quick chat with him and worked out what he thought about consuming our way out of climate change. Um, so I have here Richard Dennis, who's the chief economist and former executive director of the Australian Institute. Um, he's also associate professor at ANU. So Richard, how's it going? Yeah, well, thanks. Good, good. So as I explained before, I'm doing an episode of Beyond Zero Emissions Community to answer the question of can we consume our way out of climate change? So what's what's your gut reaction to that, Richard? <laughs> uh, well, we can change our consumption out of climate change. Uh, I think we have to consume far less of the world's natural resources. We talk a lot about uh, how much electricity we use. We talk a lot about how that electricity is produced. We don't talk much about what we use the electricity for. Yeah. And uh, we need to have a conversation about all of the scarce resources we use. And changing our consumption patterns is a very, very, very big part of tackling climate change. Uh, I'd argue that's a lot easier than, than people often think. Uh, but I think we, we have to be careful to not fall into a trap that talking about individual consumption patterns mm. means we don't have to talk about society-wide changes and regulatory changes and tax changes. There's, we, we didn't tackle smoking with a silver bullet. Uh, we, we, we have information campaigns. We have individual behaviour changes. We have regulation. We have tax. We have public information uh, well, you know, we need to get over the idea that a carbon price will fix climate change or changing consumption patterns will fix climate change. We need the full court press and consumption is a big part of it, 
but that's not to say it's the only part of it. Yeah. So I, I'm super sorry here that I'm going to be taking a bit of a pot shot at Economist, but I, I've been to one. Oh, of far the, away. <laughs> I know. I know you're one of the good guys. Um, but it seems like economists are really great at predicting a crisis after it happens. But as a field of study, it seems to be kind of bogged down in its own theoretical world to, and it has a lot of trouble factoring in the hard limits that climate change imposes. Am I being really unfair? Yeah, entirely unfair, <laughs> uh, but not, but, but not unreasonable. Um, look, there, there are thousands of, of academic economists in Australia and we hear from a handful of them. It's I understand why non-economists confuse what the handful of economists they hear say or what politicians tell people that economists say. I understand why people confuse that with what actually working economists think and say and do. So to be crystal clear... I can't choose my words more carefully here. Uh, economics doesn't have a problem, a theoretical problem or even a policy problem uh, with something like carbon dioxide pollution. It just doesn't. Uh, but a lot of economists are paid a lot of money by people that don't want any change to come up with all sorts of arguments about why it's inefficient to tackle climate change or impossible to tackle climate change or economy wrecking to tackle climate change. So, you know, I, I, I guess we, we have to, if you really want to understand what's going on, you have to understand that uh, a few very noisy economists have made climate change seem like a much bigger economic problem uh, than I think the vast majority of academic economists would suggest. But, you know, hats off. And, and why hasn't that vast majority of academic economists been much louder and clearer about what they think? Yeah, well, well, well defended. Um, I'd like to delve a little bit into the idea of green consumption, which is like you get a more energy efficient fridge or a better washing machine and you're doing a good thing for climate change. But... <laughs> The reality is everything we buy has carbon emissions. It's the transport, the manufacturing, the packaging, the whole train. Is, do you think green consumption is a massive sham? Oh, I think, <laughs> yes, the way we talk about it and the way it's practised is a massive sham. But sorry to keep being semantic, that doesn't mean the underlying idea is a bad one. Uh, so I wrote a book called Curing Affluenza, Mm -hmm. in which I distinguish between consumerism and materialism. And full confession, I spent most of my life thinking consumerism and, and materialism were the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but in curing affluenza, I argue that they actually are the exact opposite. I argue that consumerism, the love of buying things, the love of going shopping, the thrill of getting a new fridge, uh, green or otherwise, that consumerism is 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 devastatingly bad uh, for our environment. Whether or not that consumerism is green consumerism mm. uh, or minimalist consumerism or whatever you want to call it, if if you love buying new things and throwing out old things, then I think that's devastating for our natural environment. And, and in the book, I argue that materialism 
is the opposite of consumerism because materialism is the love of physical things, not the love of buying something, not the thrill of the cash register opening. Materialism is the love of the physical object. And if we loved our fridge and we cared for our fridge and we repaired our fridge and we took good maintenance of our fridge, if we loved our fridge, if we were materialist, And if we were the same about our car and our house and our kitchen and our bathroom and our electronic devices, if we loved them, cared for them, maintained them, repaired them, and indeed when we didn't need them anymore, put effort into finding a new home for them. Imagine you had a dog and you loved your dog, but you had to go overseas and you couldn't take your dog. Would you put effort into finding a new home for your dog or would you discard it because you didn't need it anymore? And my argument is if we loved our things like we love our pets, then we'd put as much effort into finding a good home for the things we love uh, as we would into caring for them and maintaining them. So, so I think materialism is at the heart of, uh, of, of, of kind of green consumer behaviour. But if we define uh, green consumerism as going looking for a new fridge or a new car, then it's devastating. But if we can, if we can try to consume services like repair services rather than new, uh, rather than new things, I think we can not just transform uh, the shape of our economy. I think we can create a lot, lot more jobs because repair is more labour intensive than replace. Uh, we can create a lot more jobs and 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 have happier, healthier lives. So that sounds like that would take an incredible behavioural change within our country and the way that like yep. a, a cultural, a big cultural shift. How on earth do we go about something like that when there's so many forces working at maintaining the status quo? Yeah, you mean how do we do it again? Well, uh, yeah. because, because the culture we have now is brand new. Like in the 7,000 years of recorded history, we've never behaved this dumbly before. Uh, in, in, mm. in, you know, Australia is a very new place, but for the vast majority of, uh, of the, the Federation of Australian States, most Australians never behaved or believed or acted the way we do today. Yeah. Um, my dad not only took his sandwiches to school in a brown paper bag, uh, he took the brown paper bag home <laughs> each day because why would you throw out a perfectly good brown paper bag? So it's a trap to believe that the culture that we've created in the last 20 or 30 years is somehow permanent and immutable and inevitable. It is a brand new idea to pay $10 a litre for water and throw the bottle away. It's never been done before. It wasn't done when I was a kid probably wasn't done when you were a kid. The idea that uh, we, we throw things out rather than repair them is a brand new idea. So, yep, it is a big radical change in our culture to do something like encourage people to repair things, but it's not a new idea. And indeed, it can't be hard to change culture that much because our culture has been transformed radically in the last 30 years and we didn't even kind of notice 
Okay, but take I take my tin pot economic version of my interpretation of things. We've had this insane increase of living standards since World War II. Our economy has become dependent on on this huge amount of growth. So so there's two ways you can get growth, as I as uh, I think. So there's the the size of the market grows, but then there's increase of efficiency and it feels like baked in within that increase of efficiency in the last 50 years that it has become this cultural conditioning through advertising to get a whole bunch of people to buy stuff that they don't want like our economy and market depends on yeah it's fascinating idea isn't it the more stuff australia imports and the more quickly we throw it in the bin and the more money we spend burying the imports under the ground, mm-hmm. the wealthier we become. I mean, yeah. let's just break that down. <laughs> the idea that waste creates wealth is the exact opposite, the precise polar opposite of what economics textbooks tells us creates the wealth of nations. But you're right, for 30 or 50 years now, we've been told that the path to wealth is built on a, on a, on a road full of waste. Uh, so to be clear, whether we invest billions of dollars a year importing new fridges that we didn't make or spend those same billion dollars on health or education or aged care, uh, GDP doesn't notice. GDP doesn't care. The GDP is a much maligned indicator, but to be clear, all it does is add up all the things we spent money on. And, and if we all spend money, imagine we all decided that it was embarrassing to have a washing machine more than 12 months old. And, uh, and, and we passed a law to say that it was dangerous to have a washing machine more than a year old and everyone in Australia bought a new washing machine every 12 months. Let's be clear, GDP wouldn't grow. The economy wouldn't be bigger. What would be bigger is the part of the economy that sells washing machines. And what would be smaller is the things we could have otherwise spent that $1,000 on. So we've been trapped and tricked into thinking that wasting money on crap is, quote, good for the economy. When what we mean to say is wasting money on crap we don't need is good for the part of the economy that sells crap we don't need. It doesn't create wealth. I don't get richer if I chuck my washing machine out more quickly. The economy doesn't, quote, get richer if I chuck my washing machine out more quickly. What happens is the person that sells me washing machines gets richer. And if I spent the money instead, on, on paying nurses higher wages or childcare workers higher wages through my tax, then those nurses and childcare workers would go and spend the money on something other than a new washing machine, most likely, mm. and some other part of the economy would expand. So it's a wonderful trick. It's been well played. They've got away with it for decades. But just keep asking yourself, how does waste create wealth? And if you can't answer that question, then you know someone's bullshitting you. Yeah. I can remember walking around um, like the inner west in Sydney and, and having an instinctive feeling that there was some sort of 
cultural decline happening when I started seeing flat screen TVs on the side of the road. Like, so I'm really interested, I guess, I guess looking at agency and the weird paradox where you grab an individual off the street and they will tell them they choose what they spend their money on. Right. And that the agency yep. is hundred percent with them. But then again, we've got advertising works because otherwise companies wouldn't be spending insane amounts of money. So, so do you have some sort of feeling about what's happening here? Oh, look, of course advertising works. Um, that's why we banned advertising for smoking because mm. we didn't want people to smoke. Uh, that's why we haven't banned junk food advertising to kids because we want kids to eat junk food. That's why we haven't banned, uh, you know, uh, sugary drink sales in, in, in and near all schools because we, we want kids to drink them. We have enormous agency. I mean, the best trick of neoliberalism, the best trick is to make powerful people feel powerless. Of course we know how to, 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 to stop people doing something. Uh, we know this because we've stopped people doing things. And do individuals have agency or, uh, or are they influenced by culture? Well, both. Just like we need carbon prices and regulation to reduce emissions and we need consumer behaviour, we don't have to choose our favourite mechanism, both work. Uh, we should never answer the question, do people have agency, or individual agency, or, all, or are they influenced by advertising and the culture around them? Mm. Both are true. Uh, anyone that wears a tie... I put it to you, where's a tie? Because they grew up in a culture where putting a tie on was an important symbolic and cultural act. And yeah. once upon a time, people wore cod pieces for precisely the same reason. <laughs> no, but we laugh at cod pieces. What do you think people in a thousand years' time are going to do when they read histories of some of the crazy shit that we do? <laughs> so culture has an enormous impact on our behaviour. The largest irrigated crop in the United States, the largest irrigated crop is lawn, is grass. More land is dedicated to the growing of grass than is dedicated to the growing of wheat or sunflowers or any other irrigated crop. And why do people have a lawn in America? Well, because their parents did and their neighbours do. And to be a good citizen in suburbia, one has a lawn. And to be clear, this is a precisely new idea, post-World War II phenomena, really. Uh, it's not worldwide. It's, it's largely an English-speaking phenomena. And imagine in Australia if rather than demonstrating polite citizenship through the medium of lawn, we demonstrated polite citizenship through the growing of some carrots and vegetables and sunflowers in our front yard. Our economy would look entirely different. We would use far less water. We would buy far less food from shops, but we wouldn't buy less food or we wouldn't buy less things. We'd just buy less food from shops with lower transport miles and we'd spend the money on something else. So it'd be devastating for the part of the economy that sells lawnmowers, but it wouldn't be devastating for the economy. So culture determines why we grow lawn. Culture determines why we wear ties. And of course, culture determines uh, all sorts of things or influences so many major decisions we make. doesn't mean individuals can't buck the system. Of course they can, but it's hard to swim against the tide. But um, we've, we've changed the tide radically in the last 50 years. We can change it again if we want to. 
Yeah, I noticed that uh, there's the the in in Norway they actually banned all advertising of cars because they had all these cars coming out like Toyota Priuses and stuff like that, and they were saying that they were green. But the the ombudsman in in Norway said that there's no such thing as a car that's good for the environment. Only a car that's less damaging than another car. And so I guess when we put together all these dichotomies, there's sort of the promise and the brand and the advertising of consumerism. And then there's the reality, which is the sober accounting of carbon gains and losses. And it seems like if consumers really sat down and did the sums about carbon, they would just buy less or repair the stuff that they have. Uh, but yep. on average, they kind of don't. So it seems kind of less of an economics question and way more of a, of a cultural one, right? Uh, yeah, but see, economics doesn't... Economics isn't confused by the existence of culture. Right. <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, uh, why... Uh, you know, huge, huge influence. Uh, okay, let's go back a step. We, we talk as if economists think price is the only thing that affects behaviour, but there's a whole economics of advertising. Um, you know, it's not like no, people don't know that these non-price factors exist and operate. It's just we've been told to not pay much attention to them. Well, why do you think people want us to pay not much attention to them? Because they don't want us to change them. Yeah. So, again, I just think we have to start from the obvious that we haven't always behaved this way and we won't always behave this way. And most people in the world don't behave this way. So why on earth would we think the way we behave now is somehow immutable and, and, and impossible for us to influence. Uh, it's, it's a very hard to say, I'm going to change culture tomorrow and do it. Uh, but it's also very hard to say, I'm going to keep culture the same for the next 20 years. Culture's going to change radically. We're just haggling over the direction of that. Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been super, super illuminating. And I have come away with a, with a really great opinion of, Certain economists, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. All right. Let's go change culture together. <laughs> okay. See ya. Welcome back. Uh, after speaking with Richard Dennis, I, I really felt like the question of how we change the way we consume was not an economic one, but a cultural one. I had read a paper by Canadian professor Lyle Grant about the relationship between consuming and climate change. And it talked about how people being very materialistic or consumerist, as Richard Dennis made the distinction, was actually learned behavior. Professor Grant was a behavioral scientist, so I decided to chat with Dr. Stefan Kaufman a research fellow at Monash Uni's Behaviour Works Australia. I wanted to get from Stephen an understanding on whether our culture could be changed and what sort of behaviours it was relying on. So here's Dr. Stephen Kaufman now. Hey, how's it going, Dr. Kaufman? Hope everything's nice over there in Potsdam. Yeah, it's great, thanks. Um, very much enjoying uh, Berlin in the summertime. Oh, lovely. So... I'll tell you where I've gotten to with my question of can we consume our way out of climate change? I've 
spoken with economist Richard Dennis. He said that materialism isn't the problem, but consumerism is. The idea is that people out there are needing to buy new stuff all the time to feel emotionally content. Needless to say, that doesn't really work. They don't end up super happy about it. Um, so my question to you is why do people keep doing it? Well, it's a good question. Um, I should explain. I, I'm, um, I trained in a field called human ecology, which is looking at the interactions between people and their environment. And questions like this are, are pretty central to that field. Um, I'm also the son of a American advertiser and an Australian feminist social ecologist. So I, I guess it's um, something that's close to my heart as well, this question of um, yeah, are, we, are we going to market our way out of this or do we need some kind of transformative revolution to save the world? Um, so yes, great question. Um, I suppose what I would say is that, you know, it seems attractive to apply the tools of marketing and consumerism to big problems. And in, I think there's a lot of good it could potentially do. And I also think there's a, a saying people say, which is that there's a, a simple answer to every complex problem and it's wrong. Um, so there's, there's no simple solution and it's not simply going to be marketing, but I, I suspect it could be part of the solution. And the reason I think we, we are such nat natural consumers is, well, exactly that, that I think there's um, some natural elements to humanity and human nature that make us... Um, crave things and um, if you look back at our, our history, particularly the pre-industrial times, um, you know, it's, it's probable that we were still um, kind of greedy, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd crave um, fatty meat and sweet fruits and things like that, um, but they were rare and hard to get in that environment and equally we were probably litterbugs, um, you know, we made lots of things out of local materials and um, substances and would throw them away and the important difference of course is that um, you know, these, these things, one, we had to make them, so we'd use them as much as we could before we did get rid of them. Um, it took labour and skill and time. But also, once we did get rid of them, they were usually biodegradable and so on. But if you talk to any, um, you know, paleontologist or people studying the interaction between people and environment, I, I have a friend at Melbourne who studies um, seashell middens, for example, which is the leftover rubbish from um, feasting on lots of mollusks um, that Australian Aboriginals did, for example. Um, you know, the early humans were litterbugs, you know, <laughs> it just didn't matter as much. And so I guess, you know, my more complicated answer to your question is that um, I think we're, we've created a, a modern environment where those pretty normal tendencies, those things that are maybe fairly fundamental to who we are, um, have much more impact and they're much, much less desirable. And in some ways, they're probably um, not so well for, good for our well-being. What I'd say is, is that it's not so much that we could or couldn't consume our way out of the climate change problem on an individual basis. It's more about the system in which that consumption happens and the interaction between individuals in that context. Yeah, that that yeah. makes a lot of sense. I, it seems, uh, yeah, the, the bit that I struggle with is the idea that that's that, that hardwiredness of it and, and the role of agency uh, within it. Because I, I read this paper for to prepare for this and it was by a guy called Dr. Lyle Grant and he rather than us kind of hardwired you know need to consume the idea is he has is like what about an alternative lifestyle where people are not looking at material goods to see themselves as like successful or not gratifying themselves in that way but rather live 
what he calls an aesthetic lifestyle where you're into great conversation and art and music and admiring nature. Um, all that seems a little bit far off. But my point is, as a, as a behavioral scientist, how do these current behaviors become so entrenched in, in our culture? Well, I, I guess it's, it's just that, that um, we, we aren't passive agents. We do have agency, um, but it's, it's interactive with our environment and many small changes add up. Um, so, you know, for example, it's quite common in an Australian diet to have um, meat in, in multiple meals, if assuming you're not a vegan or a vegetarian, that is. Um, and yet, if you go back to our grandparents' generation, um, you know, if you were lucky, you might have um, fish on Friday and lamb on Sunday and, and maybe chicken during the week if you're lucky once or twice. You know, this whole thing of um, these things became a lot more common and easy to get. So we, we created an environment where, um, you know, un unless you're uncommonly self-disciplined and reflective, um, it's super easy just to reach out and grab and, and buy, um, often on credit these days, um, any of these things you want. And I, I would agree with um, Grant's analysis that, you know, a possible diagnostic, uh, sorry, uh, an antidote, if you like, might be to build up people's ability to live more reflective, deliberative kind of lifestyles. Um, but I also think we need to recognise that um, we've created an environment where that's increasingly difficult. You know, we have we all have portable devices that um, demand our attention and keep us a little bit distracted all the time. And um, yeah. I, I guess what the kind of the kind of behaviour that Grant is talking about there is um, they require our our rational, reflective faculties, and they're they're a very scarce and valuable resource in our mind. They're um, some people think we only make somewhere between 10 and 50% of our decisions every day in a very conscious way, and the rest of them are essentially hardwired habits. And the way those habits come in is we encounter a problem or an issue for the first time, and then um, we find a solution that works in that context, and then when we encounter that problem again, um, we, we repeat the thing and stop thinking about it. So if you think about even something as relatively complicated as how you get to work every day, um, you might work out, you know, are you going to drive or ride your bike or walk or catch a train, but you'll, you'll slip into some kind of structure and begin to do it and stop thinking about it. And the challenge, I guess, is that um, we, because we have a society where um, you know, we uh, displace the energy and material impacts and the ecological impacts of these decisions from a very long way that you rarely feel that feedback. You know, I was talking before about the, the closeness of feedback loops being important in pre-industrial societies for that ecological, social co-evolution. Um, it's very easy to make decisions and, and live in a way and form habits that have very little connection to their actual real-world impact and, and just seem like good solutions in the moment. I think the advertising, obviously, in this situation, when you want to talk about agency, advertising has a huge role. I mean, as, as an economic force, it's getting people to spend more money on stuff that they don't want. And you were talking about debt there. I mean, that's that's so definitely inflated by advertising but what has happened to human behavior in the past 50 years since the advent of modern advertising yeah it's a, it's a good question um so i think one thing that's worth thinking about a bit carefully is um you know there's there's also advertising and particularly marketing so i, I, I see advertising as being a subset of a broader activity which i'd call marketing where we look at not just what the messaging and communication is, but also where are the products, um, how, do they, how do they look and how people interact with them, what's their prices and so on. So if you think of it as a complete package, I'd say marketing rather than advertising. Um, 
Okay. And there's, there's sustainability is full of converted marketers um, who have different narratives around, um, you know, I used to work for the dark side and now I work for the good guys and um, here's my secret tools. Um, and I think, you know, I wouldn't be entirely dismissive of that. Um, you know, certainly the, a lot of the tools that we use in my field in uh, behavioral public policy and the like draw very heavily on um, lessons from commercial marketing, but also the field of work where it's applied to, to more public good causes, which some people call social marketing as well. Um, and something that's, I guess, central to both commercial and social marketing is this notion of value exchange where, you know, at core, what you're trying to do is offer something um, that people find attractive and, and easy and, you know, something that they're, they're inclined to take up and use or, or, or participate in. And that doesn't have to be a, a, a duplicitous or, or misleading thing. It can be something that's actually good for them, but equally it, it has to be a perceived value exchange. It, um, it doesn't have to actually be real. So it's easy for someone to um, maybe be seduced into something that actually isn't that good for them or in the, in the broader term, they probably didn't want if someone makes a compelling offer. But equally um, we can direct people's attention and engage them in things that they wouldn't otherwise think about. Um, so a, a very nice example that your listeners might have heard about is um, there's uh, a, a WorkSafe regulator, WorkSafe Victoria, um, who wanted people to be more worried about workplace safety and um, also to put both staff and employers on notice that they're out there and they're trying to get people to um, be more careful and avoid injuries in the workplace. And mm -hmm. they did this quite uh, effective, I think, um, social marketing campaign around the, the most important reason to be safe at work is at home. And you, know, you might remember the Dido music and all that, where they, uh, and, and the very emotive um, scenes where kids um, are waiting for their parents to come home who might be injured or might not, and then they finally show up and everyone's relieved, that, you know, those yeah. ones. And that, that to me is a really nice example of that value exchange I'm talking about. So um, the market is involved in that and, and WorkSafe, they know that people aren't that excited about OHS and that it's kind of boring and annoying and um, you know, they don't want to be logging incidents all the time and adjusting their desks and um, putting up safety tape. But um, what they do know is that people are really concerned about um, coming home from work and their family and their well-being and, and that emotional kick of reconnecting with your family after being away working for so long. And that to me is, is a good example of that value exchange I'm talking about. So it can be, can be negative, it can be positive, it can be um, for good intentions and for bad intentions and those intentions could be realized or they could not be realized. It's, it's a tool is what I guess is what, partly what I'm saying here. It's not necessarily an inherently evil thing um, and it can be used for good or ill. I feel like it operates on that, that sort of subconscious level, uh, good, good marketing or good advertising. Cause I mean, today we've got people in the US which is just six times more materially wealthy than they were in 1930. But they're not comparing themselves to that. They're comparing themselves to the person down the road today. Is, is a wider perspective regarding wealth over time a way to stop people buying stuff they don't need? Um, I think it's a... I mean, this, this is gets to some of that value exchange, right? So we, we could be promoting values that are more about um, finding satisfaction in people around us and the natural environment and um, doing stuff with our own labor instead of um, maybe buying advanced technological objects that require a lot of labor and resources from all over the world like iPhones and the like. Um, and, and I think that's, that's worth talking about um, and exploring. I, I think part of that 
that relative thing is is again that problem that we're so we're so damn good at adapting to environments that we partially engineer ourselves through um, the the complex emergent properties of um, how we set up our economies and our societies and, and our interactions with nature. And so, you know, it's almost irrelevant the actual the fact that um, by any objective basis we are far more wealthy and far more rich in energy materials now than humans have ever been. Even um, some of the most poor people on the planet have access to much more resources and tools and technology um, than pre-industrial humans did. Um, so I think, I mean, uh, I guess a part of that conversation is also, and this is something Richard Dennis talks a lot about in some of his books, is this difference between, I guess, genuine progress or an adequate level of consumption versus hyper-consumption and, and the level we, we need. Um, but some of the analysis the Australian Institute did, I think, well-being and economic growth started to separate in developed countries sometime around the 70s in Australia and US, for example, where um, the, the net improvement in things like health and happiness and other things began to taper off or even decline somewhere in the 70s, even as the economic activity grew and grew and grew. So this notion that there might be um, enough material consumption uh, is probably something that we should explore and promote and try, try and find what that happy level is. And equally, we do need to recognise that there's a, an absolute minimum level of um, consumption of resources, energy and, and economic activity that are probably necessary to make sure that you know, people are healthy, that they can reach their full potential through education and um, social development and, um, and things like that as well. Yeah, it's, you were talking before about um, adaptation and, and people's ability to, to kind of um, adapt to the emergent properties of, of civilization as it develops. I'm also interested in advertising's ability to adapt and Green consumerism is one of those things. When people buy a Prius or a more energy efficient microwave, you kind of get to have your cake and eat it too. Like you get the thrill of something new, but also feeling that you're doing something good for the environment. But the only problem is that's not always true because you're still using heaps of carbon to create something new. There's carbon, you know, in manufacture and transport, everything like packaging. Why? Is green consumerism so seductive now? I think I think it's um, it's worth picking that apart a little bit. Like there's that going back to that point about sufficiency versus excess consumption, for example. So you know, there's there's a point where you've got to say something about what level of consumption of resources is acceptable and by who and in what ways. Um, but take, taking it to a logical extreme, maybe the most sustainable consumption anyone could do is walking over to presumably a large compost heap, um, putting a biodegradable plastic bag over your head and taping it on and, um, you know, dying there. <laughs> and that, that's, that's, if you, if you, that's if you take the extreme view that really um, we shouldn't be having any impact on the environment and you could argue particularly in Western countries we've had our fair share and we need to, you know, decline our population, decline our economies and, and so on and make room for other people. And mm-hmm. to me that's, that's a kind of extreme view. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I also think it's it's a fairly narrow view of what it means to be sustainable. Like, I think, you know, for example, this example of buying a Prius, um, some people are, are not going to make extreme lifestyle changes in any way, um, or in, in a substantial way, I should say, and maybe buying a Prius is the best they can do. Um, I think 
there's a lot of um, noise around just how sustainable some of these things are. You know, you'll, you'll hear life cycle analyses produced about things like Priuses quite regularly that variously prove or disprove whether or not they're a net environmental gain or not. Um, and I think my understanding, at least, and I'm not an expert in life cycle analysis, is that um, they're still overall better than a, a regular petrol car in terms of net environmental benefit. I could be wrong. Yep. Um, and, you know, should we not have a, a movement towards sustainability that at least at least has some room for people who, if all they're willing to do is drive a Prius instead of a regular petrol car, um, is that enough that they can do that and people who can do more do more, perhaps? Um, you know, I, I worry sometimes that there's this sort of dismissive attitude to um, people who are only able to do relatively small things as opposed to fundamental deep changes. Um, equally, you know, there is the argument that the changes we need to see are so great that small changes aren't enough. And I'm not unsympathetic to that. I just worry about um, this idea that everyone has to change in, in one model of sustainability. Another point that's worth thinking about too is um, some of those life cycle publications and so on are put out as deliberate interference by public relations firms and marketers for the, the established fossil fuel industries and so on. And, Right. Um, sowing confusion is, is um, you know, if you, if you want to um, manipulate people to inaction, um, confusing them about what the, the best action is and um, sowing doubt is a pretty good way to um, leave people in the, in the default of everyday life. Part of what you're talking about there is this issue of spillover around behaviour. So um, people have noted with some glee and some worry that um, if you take up one sustainable behaviour, um, there's mixed evidence about whether you're more likely to do or not do other behaviours and when it's um, in the right direction we call that positive spillover and when it's in the, the wrong direction we call it negative spillover. So an example of negative spillover might be you um, install energy efficient technology in your home for example but then you're like sweet I don't have to worry about energy efficiency and you end up using a lot more or, or maybe there's a, a phenomenon people call moral budgeting where maybe you bought a Prius and, and you feel good about that so you feel quite good about um, going on an extra overseas holiday and using as much greenhouse emissions as you would in a year in one flight. Um, and that's, that's, that's an issue. But um, there's also what they call positive spillover, which is where if you see different behaviours as being related to each other, so, for example, you install um, high-efficiency LED bulbs and then maybe you might be more inclined to buy that energy-efficient microwave and then you might be inclined to install solar um, there's even some evidence that you might be more inclined to support more rigorous policy and um, regulation towards environmental outcomes in that area too. So, so you were talking about getting um, uh, being a little bit more generous and getting uh, don't get too hard line. And I have a a, a background um, studying the Soviet Union. And I've written about it, um, which is kind of like a whole project that's built trying to perfect humanity in the end. I mean, it had noble beginnings, but in the end, it became very much about trying to force people's behaviour to change. And it failed absolutely. And the conclusion you may draw is that even with all that sort of uh, authoritarian push, um, that people just, you can't get them to act in another way. And so maybe you should just totally just abandon the project. What do you think about that? Um, well, it's a simple answer to every complex problem, Kurt. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that um, there's people have predictable choices, right, about how they're going to behave for their own and for the, the people around them's well-being. And 
to a degree, I think we understand those better than we ever have. If you think about the, um, the sum total of knowledge we have about human behaviour and human decision making. And again, it's, it's that question of how that knowledge and how that ability to influence is used. Um, I mean, one slightly worrying thing, I guess, is that Stalin and his buddies didn't have access to ubiquitous surveillance and social media and um, you know, these um, silent policemen in everyone's pockets monitoring our, <laughs> our activity. Um, so it could be that, you know, it was the right idea, just too soon. Um, I, I doubt that, but um, it could be. And maybe more positively, I'd say that, um, you know, we're taking into account that we, we can better understand that people have certain weaknesses and strengths. Um, we can try and create um, political and economic systems that better take it into, that into account. And you could certainly argue that right now the, um, the sort of hyper-capitalism we're in now is using a lot of those insights to promote increased consumption and um, uh, these other things that you're concerned about. Um, but perhaps a, you know, a, a more um, democratic and pluralistic society that, that does have time and space for nutting these things out and having conversations about not just can we do something, but should we do something? Um, yeah, going back to Grant's model of um, that more aesthetic life. Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of these, um, particularly the behavior change in marketing that um, orientates towards cognitive biases heuristics and heuristics, which people call nudge and so on, they, they're really most powerful when people are tired and distracted and they don't care that much. Um, and, you know, supermarkets and shopping malls and the distracted society that we live in is, is all very inclined towards creating those environments. But um, could we not be trying to create environments where people are supported to make more reflective and considered decisions and do them in a less individual way that takes into account people around them um, and the impacts of their actions and, you know, really tries to um, create some of those feedback loops I was talking about at the beginning of the interview. Um, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying we should go back to some kind of romantic pre-industrial ideal, but maybe there's some lessons we can draw from that and apply to how we navigate towards them a sustain, more sustainable and probably, I suspect, um, nicer and more holistic and inclusive civilization, uh, which might be one that would survive for a long time. Dr. Kaufman, thank you so much for um, giving up your time over from over there in Potsdam. Um, thank you. No, it's, a, it's a fascinating and important topic and um, very close to my heart, so thanks for the chance to talk about it. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. That was Dr. Stephen Kaufman I was talking to there, and this is 3CR, and I'm on my quest to work out whether we can consume our way out of climate change. So just a very quick recap. We spoke to economist Richard Dennis, who told us that the level of consumption is so much to do with our cultural training through advertising and that for us to be able to change that is by and large a, a, a cultural issue. Then we just spoke with Steve, uh, St Stefan Kaufman, who is a behavioral scientist, and he was telling us all about that role that advertising has and, and, and what um, our ability to impact and influence people's mental state and the way and the decisions that they make within an economy. I decided I would speak for, to the end of the quest to try and create a little bit of advertising of my own. So I spoke with Killian David, who is a brilliant comedian and a friend of mine, and I gave him a call and we talked about how we would create an ad 
that would be able to influence people's behaviour. This is him now. Uh, Kill, you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are you? Good, man. Good. Good to talk yeah. to you. Yeah, you too. Um, What's up? So I'm, I'm doing this radio program and it's on can we consume our way out of climate change? And right. I, I talked to a economist and he's like, oh, it's, uh, it's an issue with uh, the economy, but the way that people are behaving. So then I talked to a behavioral scientist and he had some really interesting things to say about the way that people consume and how much agency they have in a situation and, and what the influence of advertising is. He mentioned that there was there can be good advertising and bad advertising. Good advertising is helps people to do things that are that are good for them and has has their welfare kind of at the forefront. That's their that's their goal. Mm-hmm. So I had this idea which was be like, oh maybe it would be cool to do an advertisement, but a satirical one on like the traditional promises of of consumerism, because this behavioral scientist was talking about how the way that people uh, consume, like the, the advertising has these promises and the promises are, you know, oh, drink a Coke and you'll be happy and surrounded by people you like. Which yeah. is third, but then they have these real life um, that the, you, people watch them and you believe them. And it seems really credible yeah. that, that if I drink a Coke, I'll be at this party with all these. Yeah. And they still have these ads, right? Like, these ads have been going on for 50 years and they still kind of work. Totally. And yeah. if I watch the ad, even if I know it's it's rubbish, it still kind of works. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's still, yeah. It's still, there's a little grain of it still stinks into your brain. Yeah. Even though you're like, oh, this is bullshit. I'm not falling for this. Yeah. But, I've, I've but I drink Coke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so... I was calling you because I, ha- I thought it would be cool to do a fake advertisement that makes yeah. fun of all these things. And I thought uh, one thing that this Stefan Kaufman, who's this behavioral scientist that I talked to, he was, he was talking about that people make bad decisions when they're distracted. And mm. I think the internet, people walking around with a phone in their hand means they're distracted more than ever. So I think it would be cool if we could make an ad that made fun of the way that advertising works and at the same mm. time kind of targeted the internet. What do you reckon? Oh, I think that's a great idea. That reminds me of um, an ad that I actually saw quite recently, just of what you're talking about, especially with the internet. It's an, have you seen this ad for broadband where there's this a kid and he's kind of introducing his family to the... <laughs> Yeah, in the end, he's, and he's going, oh, we all use broadband for different things. And it's so, such an innocuous way of telling everyone what the internet's about. It's like, oh, my, my dad uses it to watch the cricket. Mm-hmm. My mom uses it to get cooking tips. And my sister uses it to, you know, check yeah. in with their friends. And I use it to play video games. It's like, right. yeah, but... What else? Like, what else is the internet used for? Like, it's yeah. When I watch this, it's like there's so, there's so many other bad things that the internet's used for that people become like uh, addicted to, and their lives and their well-being is completely um, you know just destroyed by it. And you could, I don't know, like you could flip it around and do something with that. Like, or the mums, you know, like addicted to gambling, or like you know the, the kids using it to like cyberbully people, or he's. Or both, and you know the 
the whole flip side, like the sort of the seedy underbelly of, the, of what the internet's become. And I, I know that Facebook's evil, but I use Facebook all the time, right? Like I was chatting to you on Facebook like the other night. Like I've, I still use it and I'm well aware of it. Yeah, here I am, you know. <laughs> here we both are chatting over the internet. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's great. Um, so, what do you reckon? Yeah, you could do something like that, right? I think that's a really good idea. I'm going to go off and I'll, I'll give it a shot and then... Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll send it to you and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, please do. Please do. Awesome, man. Awesome. Okay. So that was Killian David, and you'll get a chance to listen to the slick corporate advertisement that uh, I made right after this. But first, just an announcement if you haven't been reading the news. The Wangan and Jagalingu people, that is the original owners of the area that the Adani mine is on, have been made illegal in their own land by Queensland's Palaszczuk government. This might mean they will be forcibly removed. Please give generous to the Defence of Country Fund and show solidarity to the W&J people. I will put the link in the show notes. One last shout-out. We would love to hear what you think about this show, and if you have any questions you would like answered by me in subsequent shows, email me, Kurt Johnson, at uh, the email address radioteam, all one word, at bze.org.au with a question that you would like to know about climate change, and I'll find out for you. Something like, you know, we are we doomed? Is Australia really barely guilty of 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 emissions that sort of thing again the email is radio team at bze.org.au thank you so much to andy viv richard dennis stephen kaufman and killian david much of this uh, material was inspired by the published article can we consume our way out of climate change by lyle grant now Thanks, too, to the Muckinsons for letting us into their house with the following ad. I'm Kurt Johnson, and this is 3CR. This is 15 Riley Street, and we're the Muckinsons. Welcome to our digital world, made possible by Belstra, MBN. When I'm not playing computer games, I'm watching movies or cyberbullying the artsy kid from school. It's made bullying so much more convenient. My little sister Samantha used to hog all the bandwidth with her Instagram, but now, with MBN, she can be on Instagram and Tinder all at the same time. How's it going there, sis? <laughs> and I only see mum when she comes down to get another package from the Moronic. Where does she get all the money? In fact, ever since she had her identity stolen, I'm not sure she's my mum anymore. Mum, are we eating to... Oh... Even Dad's getting into it. Get out! We don't go out anymore since getting the Belstra MBN package, although it seems like the weather and politics are heating up outside. (laughs) But we're definitely more connected thanks to our Belstra MBN. Thanks, Belstra. (laughs) 